This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 8. It begins on page 230 in the Bibles in your rows and is also printed in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along as I read, it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, and we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of, the, of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your words. We pray that you will speak to us in different situations and circumstances of our lives, that you encourage us and comfort us. Even though these words seem so foreign to us, we pray that they will feed us in, your, in our spirits. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Zhang, one of the pastors at New City. We've been going through the story of Prophet Samuel, and we've been saying a few times throughout this series. The book of Samuel is where Israel goes from a collection of tribes to a centralized monarchy, and Samuel is the leader that oversees 
this transition. In the last few weeks, we've talked about Samuel's birth, his calling by God as a prophet, his military victory as a judge. But that still under, happened under the old regime, the old form of government. Like I said before, it's like continuation of the book of the Judges. But finally today, it's happening. The people came to Samuel and said, we want a king. But before we go into all of this, I want to share a story about Coca-Cola and a dear friend. How many of you have been to the World of Coke Museum in Atlanta? All right, many of you. It's a great museum in downtown Atlanta. It tells you the history of Coca-Cola, although they don't tell you that Coke was invented by a former Confederate soldier as a medicine to cure morphine addictions, among other things, minor details. Anyway, the museum gives you a history of Coca-Cola, what kind of advertisement they use throughout the decades and the global impact that Coke has. And the best part of the museum, at the end of the tour, you get a cup and you get to taste all the Coke products around the world. A lot of happy kids there. Now, about 10 years ago, two of my friends and I took a road trip to Atlanta for a wedding. In the morning of the wedding, we visited the Coke Museum. Here's a compromising picture of us. You can see how happy we were, except for the polar bear. But the first thing we realized in the museum is that they're not just trying to sell you Coke. They're trying to sell you happiness. And all the advertisements, all the commercials, all say the same thing. If you have Coke, you will be happy. Again, morphine addiction. That's still true for Coke commercials today and many other commercials for many other products. So we're bombarded by all these commercials and advertisements and colors in the museum, and my friends were having a great time, and I became kind of cynical. And naturally, I started to whine. It's so dumb, so commercialized, so superficial. And on and on, I kept whining, and my friend Javier, who probably got annoyed, and he was getting a PhD in theology in Cambridge, he got serious for a moment, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, Ryan, this is competing theology. I will try to explain what he meant a little bit later, but that moment was life-changing for me. Now we come to this passage in Samuel. It appears that it's about a change in political structure, from decentralized tribes to a centralized monarchy. And maybe if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize it's about justice and national security. The Israelites had to do this to survive. But the heart of this story is not about political structure, it's not about national security, it's about competing theology. So we'll look at three things, the demand for a king, the warning about a king, and God provides a king. So the people demanded for a king. Why? Well, the first three verses give us the background. It says Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. By the way, the word perverted justice literally means they stretch justice, kind of like how you stretch a rubber band. What a brilliant way to describe this concept, right? A lot of times when corrupt people pervert justice, they don't just ignore it entirely. They just stretch it. They bend it a little bit for their own gain. Now back to the main story. Samuel appointed his sons to be judges, and they were corrupt. Sound familiar? Of course it does, because that's what exactly happened with Eli and his sons a few chapters before. 
when Eli's son profited off people's offerings. But this problem is not just with Eli's barbecue. It's a cycle that happened many, many times. To go back to the book of Judges, the Israelites turned away from God and God sent foreign enemies to oppress them. The Israelites cried out. God gave them a judge. The judge ruled for a period of time and there were peace in the land. But the judges get old. They die. The people turn away again. The cycle repeats itself. Each time the cycle repeats itself, Israel descends deeper and deeper into moral and political chaos. And they're tired of this. They're tired of the cycle of instability. They need some continuity. They need someone to defend their country. They need some unifying figure to bring the people together. And they're not wrong. And at the, book of, at the end of the book of Judges, which some people believe is written by Samuel, it says several times in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They needed a king. And God promised that kings would rise out of Abraham's descendants. But they were wrong in why they asked for a king. Nor was there reason for a king. Verse 5. Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They want a king like everybody else. Instead of repentance and turning back to God to break this vicious cycle in Judges, instead of relying on God to save them, instead of living distinctly as God's people, they looked around the people who defeated them, people who are more successful than they are, people who are stronger. And what is one thing that they have that the Israelites doesn't? A king. They want a king to give them security, success, and strength like all the other nations. They wanted a king to replace God. And that's exactly what God says to Samuel. God says to Samuel in verse 7, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They're tired of me. They're tired of repenting and coming back to me. They wanted a shortcut to success. But take a look what connection God makes here. God says, According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. God is bringing up old memories, memories of people worshiping the golden calf and false gods. And that seems very different from what's happening here, right? We've been talking about idol worship in the last few weeks. That many times, the Israelites literally bow down to golden idols, But Samuel had already asked them to put away those idols and false gods. But there's a more subtle form of idolatry. They're not bowing down to worship little golden figures, but they're replacing God nevertheless. It's a different form of idolatry, but it's the same thing. They're seeking security, success, and strength in something other than God. And that, my friends, is competing theology. It's relying on something else to give us things that only God can give us. Our kids love to listen to Daniel Tiger music. And there's this very catchy song, and I think it's actually from Mr. Rogers. And it goes like this, There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I cared about you. There are many ways to love an idol. John Calvin says the human heart 
It's a factory of idols. All roads lead to Rome. Somehow, somewhere, we eventually go back to worship idols. And jealousy and envy is a very seductive path for idolatry because we know our own insecurities. We know our unhappiness, and we see other people's happiness. We want what they have. And that's particularly dangerous in the, day, in the age of Instagram because everyone just looks so happy and content there. You know, we just finished the Olympics, and every time I would do this, I would look at the people winning gold medals, and I thought, hmm, what can I still do that will win me a gold medal? No, certainly not gymnastics or swimming. Probably not anything with a ball. Maybe shooting. Because that looks easy enough, right? I can do that. And the Chinese are pretty good at that stuff. So it would be cool, wouldn't it, to win a gold medal? And you may be tired of the cycles that you live in, of your jobs, of your singleness, of your family. You look at other people, they're happy. And all they have and you don't is Coke. So you get it. Competing theology. You look at other people, they're secure, and all they have and you don't is money. So you make as much as you can. Competing theology. You look at other kids, they're successful. And all they have and you don't is an Ivy League education. So you push your kids to get one. Competing theology, that happens a lot in Asian families. It's one of our idols. You look at other political parties. They're pushing through bad policies and ruining the country, and all they have and you don't is power. So you do whatever you can to win elections, or even to steal one. Competing theology. And you may think that Christians are better than this. It's actually more dangerous for us. Because we can dress this up with piety. Now we pastors know this well. Lord, make me famous like Tim Keller so I could convert thousands of people. Lord, it's okay for me to indulge in my sins because my church is growing by leaps and bounds. Lord, give me more money so I can share some with the poor. See, that's essentially what's happening here. The people came to Samuel, who was a prophet, and they said, Samuel, you speak for God, and your sons don't care about justice, so give us a king. They appear to worship God, but they actually tell God deep in their hearts, come serve the idol that I serve. I heard a pastor in China put it this way, when we pray for something, whether it's a relationship, a person, or even our children, we put our children in God's place. Then we tell God, come and serve my children with me. This is a great dishonor and shame before God. When you worship your idols unconsciously in this way, you aren't merely beginning to forsake God, but you actually stand on the side of your idols and actively attack God. The competing theology. It happens outside the church and also happens inside the church because it happens in our hearts then how do we spot this kind of competing theology? Now, obviously, not all things are idols. Some of these are good things. Money, success, power, education, all of them have their proper places. They are blessings from God, but but here's a sign how they become idols. Look at Samuel's warning to the people. 
He says, beware of what you're asking for. You're going to get more than you bargained for. You want a strong, centralized leader. Here's what he will do to you. He's going to take you, your sons and your daughters, your whole family to serve him. He will take your properties. He will take the fruits of your labor. He will take your employees and servants to do his work. The king will have unchecked power. He will dominate every area of your lives. And all of these warnings will eventually come true in Israel's history of kings. But isn't this a perfect description of idols? And idolatry is all-consuming. Once you submit, it will dominate all of your thoughts and efforts. It turns you into slaves. With all the unhappiness in the world, the power of idols will never run out because there will be plenty of competing theologies that promise happiness. They have their own sets of agendas and doctrines and rituals. And there was a period of time in high school where I was a huge fan of Andy Roddick, the tennis player. Now, you all know that I loved Roger Federer, but Andy Roddick was my first love. I would follow his every tournament, every match. I would buy the clothes of his sponsor. I would talk and walk like him. And I noticed a happy coincidence. If Andy wins a tournament, or if he does well in a week, I will have a good week. And I thought, what a coincidence. My life is so in sync with Andy's. We are kindred spirits. But then I realized it's not a coincidence. That's exactly what idolatry looks like. My happiness will ride on the success of my idol. And this is why my life is so tragic. Because Andy Roddick wasn't that great of a tennis player. <laughs> so how do you identify idols? Of course, it's easy to spot little golden statues that people worship, but what about the little golden statues in our hearts? David Paulison from the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation has a list of X-ray questions. They're intended to help us identify our idols. Here are some of the questions that would be beneficial for us to constantly reflect on. Where do you bang your hopes? What hopes are you working toward or building your life around? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What are, you really, what are you really going after in the situations and relationships of life? What are you really working to get? What do you desperately hope will last in your life? What do you feel must always be there? What makes you tick? What suns does your planet revolve around? Where, does your, where do you find your garden of delight? What light lights up your world? What do you pray for? The fact that we pray does not necessarily mean that we are where we should be spiritually. On the contrary, prayer can be a key revealer of our idols, of our hearts. Prayer can reveal patterns of self-centeredness, self-righteousness, materialism, fear of man, etc. Now, there are many, many more questions like this. They touch on your times, your fantasies, your fears. It's a great tool. I highly recommend, I highly recommend you look up Look it up. And you've got to be honest with yourselves. Because it'll be a painful process. Do this with your families, too, or with your friends, because they will keep you honest. And once you find your idols, what's the solution? Now we can look at how God answered the Israelites. 
God told Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Give them what they ask for. And God raised up Saul to be Israel's first king. Now we'll be looking at King Saul's life in the next few weeks. But suffice to say here, it didn't turn out that great. And the next king, King David, was a man after God's own heart. He was much better than Saul. And he gave Israel what they wanted. But even David was far from perfect. In addition to some of his personal sins, he led Israel into a civil war and brought a pandemic upon his people. And that's a pretty obvious mess to all of us, right? Idols will fail us. The things we covet and envy do not simply enslave us, they will also fail us. You may see other people's glamorous life on Instagram, but you don't see their real life. You know, for example, I've been texting with some of your pastors. Here's a picture of what you see on social media, but then here's what it's actually like in real life. Here's a picture of what you see on social media, then that's what, it's, what it actually looks like in real life. <laughs> here's a picture of what you would see on social media, but then here's what it actually looks like in real life. Thanks for the fairies and the perpetrators for letting me use their pictures. But I don't wish you to go through harm or suffering, but God does use those hard moments to give us some healthy disillusionments. Life is hard. There's no way around it. Doesn't matter how many idols you manufacture to fix it, they will fail you. Is there more that can be done? What alternatives do we have? Now look at Israel. They can't go back to the days of the judges because those were terribles. The kings are not great either. What's the solution? You may feel personally stuck as well. You don't like where you are. But nothing else in the world can help you. What do you do? Here's what God did. God gave them a king. And then more kings. And then more kings. Some of them were good, but many of them were very bad. Until one day in the line of David, God raised up the king. This king will fight the battle for his people. He personally takes on the people's enemies. He faced it down himself, but not an army of foreign invaders. He faced down the cross and our enemies of sin and death. He came out victorious on the other side. He rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And he sends his spirit to unify his people from all around the world. Unlike Saul and all the other tyrants of the world, this king did not lord over his people. He did not enslave them for his own benefits. He gave his own life for his people, for you and me. He is the proof that God's unrelenting, unrelenting love for you is real. And like all the kings and judges in the past, who eventually died and were no more, this king is seated at the right hand of God. Right now, he will rule with justice and truth forever and ever. His kingdom will have no end. But Jesus is the king that we're all looking for. He's the only one that could give you the success, comfort, and security that you need. But here's the catch. When you give up your idols and turn to Jesus, 
God's not just asking you to turn away from your worldly success or comfort or security. God will turn upside down what success, comfort, and security looks like for you. The following Jesus means going down the way of the cross. It means going deeper into uncertainty, deeper into repentance, deeper into pain. It means you may be hated and despised by the world. Maybe instead of looking like the people who have a great life, you will look more and more like the sick, the poor, and the lost. That's what success looks like in the kingdom of God. The last will be first. The way up is by going down. Because that's the way our king has gone down for you. He did it all for you. And he came out victorious on the other side. So if you came to worship God and love Jesus, but secretly you still hope that you can have a comfortable and successful life here, your allegiance is divided. You're acting like a double agent. People can't tell where your allegiance is. You want both worlds. And you end up getting neither. Jesus says you can't worship God and money at the same time because if you love God and you also want wealth here, your allegiance is divided. Jesus wants you to love him even when you're poor. Jesus wants you to love him even when you look less and less like the happy people that you envy. Jesus wants you to love him even when you suffer great loss and tragedy because that's the witness we can give to the world, that there's hope through the deepest mysteries, mysteries of the world. When I was growing up in China, on every major holidays, especially in Chinese New Year, people would line up outside of Buddhist temples or Taoist temples to be the first ones to worship their gods. And they would pray for health, for success, for blessings on their families in the New Year. And then people would go tell their friends and their families that this god is very powerful or this temple was more effective because they would get what they would ask for. In their eyes, the goddess beg only if you can give them what they desire. And then to them, Jesus must seem very small. And Wang Yi, a Presbyterian pastor in China who is now in prison for preaching the gospel, he once said, when it comes to the Christian faith in China, people of this world don't believe that Christians truly believe in what they say they believe. When it comes to Christian faith in China, people of this world don't believe that the Christians truly believe in what they say they believe. And I'm sure it's not just a problem for Christians in China. It's our problems here too. When people hear about a prominent pastor being embroiled in scandals again, when people see Christians are more power-hungry than non-believers, when people see Christians are more concerned about their own freedom than their neighbors, they will ask, do these people really believe in what they believe? Is there anything to their message at all? And thanks be to God, China has a pastor like Wang Yi who will make the government and the world see that the, he truly believes in the gospel that he preached, so much so that he went to prison for it. Paul writes in, first, in Philippians 1 that his, his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ. 
So people could sense the power of the gospel, not despite that Paul was in prison, but because Paul's in prison. Paul and Wang Yi tells the story of a big God. They trusted God to deliver them even in their death. When the world sees that no matter how much loss and pain and persecution that it throws at you, you still love God and hold on to Jesus because you believe in his salvation through the cross, that's when you are most effective as Christ's ambassadors. That's when you're most blessed because you're following the road of Jesus. When you're weak, then you're strong. You can face down the world with courage, even defiance, and you can say, nothing here can scare me or entice me because my king has fought the same battle. He's victorious. I have a treasure that's much better. So then, what do we do in the midst of all these competing theologies? What do we do the next time we see something in our friends that we really want? Let me finish with the story. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to Paul. He appeared to Peter and John on the Sea of Galilee. And he tells Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you want. Someday in the future, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not belong. Then John adds this, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And just like Jesus said, Peter would eventually be stretched out and crucified. But then Peter sees John, and he asks Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about this guy? What's John's life going to look like? Is he going to have an easier, easier time? Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Jesus replied, If it is my will that he would remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. There will be times when we look around and ask, what about this guy? What about them? Can I have what he has? Can I I do what she does? And this is Jesus' answer for you. What is that to you? You follow me. Because Jesus the best things you could ever have. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this treasure that you have given us in Jesus, the king that came to offer his life for us, to die for us, and he rose victoriously on the other side. And you pray that, we pray that you would give us the spirit to take us to the other side, to go through all the tragedies and and the traumas and the confusion of life and lead us there to the glory, the wealth, and to the success that you have for us on the other side. Hold us together. Help us to hold on to you and strengthen us every day as we walk in this life of faith because we are weak and we are tempted by many things. We pray that you would be faithful to us as we try to remain faithful to you. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org.
Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.